Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is where we come in God's Word this morning. Not a targeted text. Uh, if you're a visitor or guest with us today and might feel very challenged by the words that are before us, but uh, we are uh, making our way through Mark's Gospel. We finished up chapter 5 last Lord's Day, and so this is the next passage that is before us. And uh, as I looked at this passage and was thinking about it and thinking, boy, I don't know, kind of hard to work in at first glance, a, a profession of faith. The more I read the passage, the more it became clear that God in His providence had indeed placed this before us on a day that we come to the table, welcome new members, and hear a profession of faith as well. Mark chapter 6 then, and we'll be reading the first 13 verses. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come here this morning on a very cold, cold day that is uncomfortable to us. But Lord, we come into your home, and we hear your words, and those words warm our hearts. They warm us with love, with hope, with joy. And that is what you provide for us, Lord. We pray that the words that Pastor Bob speaks to us this morning will sit on our hearts, will open our hearts more to you, to hear your words. Give us wisdom. Give Pastor Bob the wisdom he needs to deliver those words to us. And above all, give us a receptive heart to hear those words. We ask these things not because we're worthy, 
But we ask them in your Son, holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. As we consider this passage before us, we look at two things this morning, if you're following the outline that was provided. Number one, the teaching of Jesus, and then secondly, the response of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus and the response of Jesus. The first thing to note in regards to this teaching of Jesus is the place where it's happening. We are back in Nazareth. Uh, According to my chronological Bible that organizes things chronologically, it's been about a year since Jesus has been there. Um, It's been uh, a significant period of time uh, in which a lot of miracles have taken place in other places. That becomes obvious because the people in Nazareth are fully aware of the wonderful works that Jesus is involved in. But Nazareth is significant is because this is his hometown. We are told that in verse 1. This is the place where his family is. We learn that from the way in which those respond. It's not only his family, but you can well imagine there are those who are probably somewhere around the chronological age Jesus is. Those that were boyhood colleagues of one sort or another. Those that... Perhaps he had played with as a child, those that he had had contact with, those that in those 30 years of upbringing and training, perhaps he had done business with, and they had had some sort of relationship in that way. If you recall, a number of weeks ago, uh, before Christmas, when we uh, were dealing with the fact that Jesus came from Nazareth, I reminded you of the fact that Nazareth is a pretty small town. And and so we're not dealing with a town of thousands of people, but literally hundreds, most of which are interrelated as family. And so it's a a small little town, uh, perhaps not unlike a place like perhaps Conklin might be, where uh, news of anything could travel fast and quickly. This is the place he returns to. The second thing to note is the place where this teaching takes place is also in the synagogue. The place of teaching, the place of learning, the place of worship. The place where the people gather for instruction. We don't know exactly how. Scripture doesn't give us all of the details here, but... There had to have been an invitation extended to Jesus that he was invited upon this Sabbath day to go to the synagogue and to give the reading that comes. If we follow that which we follow in Luke, this is the Isaiah passage in which at the conclusion Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of this. This passage is fulfilled in your hearing today. So here we are, gathered in a synagogue in his hometown, Jesus teaching that which was laid open that day. Jesus didn't pick that topic in the sense of he says to somebody, hey, turn to Isaiah chapter 61, would you? Let's read that one today. That's just what came before him. Much like, as I said, this passage comes before us today. This is what was next. So they open the scroll. He's pointed to the place 
in the scroll that is to be read. And Jesus begins reading from there, from Isaiah, and then comments upon it. But now note the reaction to this teaching. The people respond being astonished, verse 2. And many who heard him were astonished. There's an amazement. There's, there's almost that jaw-dropping type of thing. Amazed at two things, we are told. We are amazed at his teaching, and we are amazed at his mighty works. That which we have just heard, the instruction we have just been given on this passage from Isaiah, we are astonished, not because this is, is so radical, not in the sense that it's so out of this world, but in the sense that it came to them, as the other gospel writers say, so authoritatively that there was such a conviction, such an understanding, such a truth of that which was before them that they're in awe. We've never heard this kind of teaching. As I've explained before, oftentimes what occurred upon these occasions was somebody standing up and saying, Rabbi so-and-so says this about the passage. And Rabbi so-and-so says this about the passage. And this person says this. And this person says that. So all it became is really quoting various rabbis and maybe trying to string those quotes together in such a way that it somehow came to make sense. Although oftentimes the rabbis are in direct conflict with one another, and the teachings, depending on who you were, could go one way or the other. The people do not get that with Jesus. There's no quoting of rabbis. There is simply the authoritative word of God, laid out, explained. And they're astonished. He's not rabbinically trained. He hasn't been with the rabbis. Where, where does he get this from? And where does this power come from? We've heard about these miracles. And undoubtedly, for those of you who have been here, you, you know there was a man with a legion of demons that Jesus cured. There was a little girl who was dead that Jesus raised to life. There's this woman who had this issue of blood for 12 years that Jesus heals. Beyond that, there's, there's met people with leprosy who have been healed. All sorts of miracles they have heard about. Where does this power come from? So that's their first reaction. But that reaction soon gives way to questioning. Not questioning in the sense of awe, but questioning in the sense of, we don't think he's all that great. After all, he is just one of us. He is just a commoner. Maybe this is some sort of trick. Maybe this is his only, uh, as it were, sermon to preach, and he's got nothing else after that. 
But then the questioning gets a little bit more particular, doesn't it? Look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? See, they're bringing you back to the fact, this man isn't trained. All he did is work with wood. Now, one might say, are they disparaging carpenters? I don't think so. But I think they're saying he's just common ordinary. He is just one of us. Let's hold back our awe, our astonishment. Let's hold back this respect. Let's be a little guarded here. After all, we know what he did for a living. Isn't he the son of Mary? Interesting term, isn't it? Because the Jews always traced ancestry through the father. And even if Joseph, who probably is by this point dead, they still would have said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? But you see, this is just one of those little digs. It's a dig that says, we know his background. We know the story. We know this whole thing about Joseph and Mary and supposedly this birth and so on and so forth. We know there was some rumors going on and we know he's probably not legitimate. In fact, this statement is saying he is an illegitimate child. That's why we will not associate him with with Joseph. Doesn't he have brothers here and sisters here? He's human. He's like us. And they took offense. So from their awe to their questions, they now took offense. Now, Jesus has done nothing to offend them, but they took offense at Jesus. That term, to take offense, it, it has, has some deep understandings in, in, the, in the language of that day. It's the same idea as behind a stumbling block. In other words, the text could read, and they stumbled over him. They tripped over him. Here is Christ, here he is teaching, proclaiming that he is the light of the world, the light of the Gentiles, that he is the one who has come to bring salvation to his people, and they trip over him. They stumble over him. They take offense at who he truly is. One of the other ways this word can be understood in the language of that day is if you think of a snare, a trap, Okay, and think of the kind of trap in which perhaps you have something, some food located here. You have some sort of uh, net or some sort of box propped up upon a stick. A stick that's probably leaning just a little bit. And as soon as that stick is tripped, they're ensnared. See, that's the other term that, that this can mean. They were ensnared. Jesus is that little stick. And the little stick 
has ensnared them into a sin, has ensnared them into rejection, had snared them into unbelief. They took offense at him. They stumbled over him. Rather than hearing by faith the word of God, rather than seeing by faith the very Son of God, their Savior, their King, their Lord, they stumbled over him. So much so that later on we are told of their unbelief. Their unbelief. C.S. Lewis once said that Jesus Christ is either the Lord, a lunatic, or a liar. The people of Nazareth chose liar. Who do you say that I am? Christ asked Peter. If you were to ask the people of Nazareth upon this day, if Jesus had simply said, who do you say that I am? The answer would be, you're a liar. We don't believe a word you tell us. We deny that you are the Son of God. We deny that you are the Savior. We, are, we deny that you are the one who has come to set us free from the tyranny of the devil. Who do you say that Christ is? Jesus didn't ask the question. He didn't need to. The response of the people of Nazareth, not only verbally, but also physically, if you read the account in Luke, things get pretty rough at this point and stage. It demonstrates to us that they are rejecting Jesus as the Christ. See, at some point in her life, Connie faced that same question. She faced the question of, what are you going to do with Christ? And she publicly professed her faith. This morning, she re-acknowledged that. She reaffirmed it. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Anita, in her life growing up, has faced that question. Who is Jesus? Is he the Lord? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? This morning, Anita has stood before us and said, Jesus Christ is Lord. But he's Lord not only of this cosmos, he's Lord of my heart, he's Lord of my life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Secondly then this morning we look at the response of Jesus. Here was the teaching. We see the response to that teaching. How does Jesus now respond to this unbelief of the people of the city of Nazareth. First of all, note his words. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. These people who had just rejected him were those who knew him best. 
His life stood as a ringing testimony for the 30 years, whatever it is, of his life that he has lived in the city of Nazareth. There is not one sin that he can be charged with. There is not one crooked business deal that he has engaged in. They have seen nothing but love and devotion and care. They have seen nothing but faithfulness. There is no charge that can be leveled against Jesus. Amongst his own family, his own brothers and sisters. Think of that one, folks, right? Can any of your brothers and sisters think of anything you did when you were 5, 6, 10, 15, 20 years old that uh, perhaps not, has not yet come to light? Because they never decided maybe for better reasons to protect themselves and not tell mom and dad what you did or another teacher or whatever else. They've just kept it in, but... They know how imperfect you are. You are not allowed to ask my family. Those of you traveling to Guatemala, no more questioning of my sister Sue. See, because we all know, don't we, that familiarity. We can all spot flaws in one another. The more we know one another, the more we see the flaws in one another. But not so with Jesus. And yet they took offense at him. See, that's what Jesus' words mean. There is no honor here. You should know me the best. The same can be said for those who are born and raised in a Christian family, who have been given the blessings of being trained in the things of God, who have had that exemplified to them in their home, who have been brought to church, who have been under the preaching of God's word, who have been given all of those blessings, they see Christ more clearly, more clearly than that Muslim in Indonesia. And yet, some continue to reject Jesus, they continue to stumble. They're not ready yet to say, Christ is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. They're not willing yet to confess Christ before men. They fear the crowd. And so they've decided he's either a lunatic or a liar. Familiarity. Are you amongst those who are familiar with Jesus? You know all about him. You might know God's word better than any of the rest of us. You can quote text. But you only use it to dispute the claims of Christ. You've taken offense. A prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Not only the words of Jesus, but note what happens to the work of Jesus. Verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there. 
What a, what a mysterious phrase, isn't it? He could do no mighty work there. What does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus suddenly became empty of power? The one who, who, who just last chapter heals this woman? The one who just in this last chapter raised a little girl from the dead? He could do nothing. Is his power limited? No, that's not what the phrase is saying. It's not somehow that the unbelief of these people makes Jesus powerless to be able to form and to do miracles. But there is something else going on. You see, Jesus performs miracles at his own will. And part of the will of Jesus is this. Where there is no faith, I will not show myself powerful. So he is limited not by their unbelief, but by his own will. I will not. Just as God. Is he powerful enough to forgive all? Absolutely. But he himself says, for those who come not to Christ, I will not forgive. Could he? Sure. But he in his own being does not. Christ could heal every single person in Nazareth. But because of his own will, where there is no faith, there is no power. But even if there is faith as small as the grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved, and it will be moved. But where there is no faith, there is no mountains that are moved. We live in a day and age in society, my friends, in which we become in danger of this. We know Christ. We believe in Christ. But we limit Christ because of our own lack of faith. We do not believe that Christ can bring some people to faith. So we don't bother with it. Our own lack of faith. No faith, no power, no blessing. Nothing could be clearer here. But then there is another statement that is made. Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled. They were astonished at his teaching. Jesus is marveling at their unbelief. Only two times in Scripture is it said that Jesus marveled. The other time is when a Gentile comes and Jesus marvels at the Gentiles' faith. Here, Jesus marvels at Jewish unbelief. It's like Jesus saying, that person heard the message of the gospel once and committed their life to me. And you've heard it how many times? And he marvels. 
Not at the sense of he doesn't know. He's Christ. Of course he knows. He is God. Of course he knows. But there is that marvel. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine that. But then Jesus does one other thing. And that's the second part of the text. He sends out these workers. And it's interesting when you put this passage in the context, what you realize is this. This is a whole training run. This whole rejection in Nazareth is a picture of the rejection that's going to take place in Jerusalem. But what does Jesus do? Go hightail it, cover it up. Oh man, they didn't like me. I guess I better not do anything. Now, he six times over goes out into the country. This does not limit Jesus. This empowers Jesus in the sense of, okay, now we're going to Six times our efforts. Guys, come here. Two by two, go out. Six pairs of disciples going out in the name of Christ. You go now. You've seen rejection. See, that's why that statement at the beginning of verse 1 is so important, that the disciples were with him. They'd seen the popularity. They'd seen the crowds. What does rejection look like? Here, let's go to Nazareth. I'll show you rejection. Be prepared. It's going to come when we go to Jerusalem too. They're going to reject me. They're going to try to kill me here in Nazareth. They will kill me in Jerusalem. Be ready. But you know how we respond? Go out into all the world and preach the gospel. The challenges of this world are many. But we are amongst those who are called now to be his workers. To go out into this world with the message of Jesus Christ. With the authority of Christ. With Christ's own authority. And he gave them, verse 7, authority even over unclean spirits. You don't need to take anything with you because I'm not sending you to China. I'm not sending you to India. I'm not sending you to Europe. I'm not sending you to Africa. I'm sending you next door. Go to the next town. Go to the next community. Go there. Proclaim in my name. And I give you the authority and power. See it in Matthew chapter 28 all over again, right? All authority and power has been given unto me. Now therefore I say to you, go! Go in my power. Go in my authority. Go to the world. Go to your community. Go to your family. Go to your friends. See, this is the word of the Lord for each of us this morning, but I think in particular, Anita, this is the word of the Lord for you. You are not alone. You're not alone in the sense that you have brothers and sisters in Christ here, but even more importantly, you are not alone. 
Even as we quoted that verse before, he who confesses Christ before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. The authority of Jesus Christ goes with us to proclaim the truth. And what is the message? Repent! Repent! Repent. The message of the gospel. Repent. Turn from your sin. Come to Christ. The only sacrifice. The only means of salvation. This is the message of the gospel. There can be no turning from Christ without a turning from sin. And if you turn from sin but turn not to Christ, it does you nothing. The message of the gospel. Turn from sin. Turn to Christ. The good news. There is salvation. Nazareth rejects. There will be those who reject the message of Christ, the good news of the gospel. But we continue to go under the authority and command of Christ. Is he a liar? I hope your answer this morning is no. Is he a lunatic? would pray that that is not the answer in your heart of hearts. I would pray that you might respond as Peter will respond. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And God's people say, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. As you have fed us and nourished and challenged us by that word this morning, now as we come to the table, we pray that you will feed us and nourish us here as well. The glory for the honor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And God's people say, Amen.